Hello and welcome to Order Order, Mail Plus Radio's politics podcast. With me, Simon Walters, assistant editor of the Daily Mail. And me, Amanda Platel, Daily Mail columnist. Coming up, Hillary Clinton's in the UK pushing her new book, Gutsy Women. And it doesn't have Margaret Thatcher in it. Talking of gutsy women, the redoubtable Anne Widdicombe is standing for Parliament yet again. This time for the Brexit party. I've been speaking to her. And I interviewed Esther McVeigh. And she tells how she confronted John McDonnell in the Commons Tea Room over his extraordinary Lynch the B-I-T-C-H remark about Esther. Esther also displays raw emotion, recalling the day that she was reunited with her natural parents aged just four and a half after having lived in a Bernardo's home since she was a baby. And Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth sets out Labour's health plans. Don't forget, you can email us with your questions during the week at orderorder at dailymail.co.uk and we'll attempt to answer as many as we can during the show. Nigel Farage has come under renewed pressure to give Boris Johnson a clear run at Labour in key marginal seats. Brexit donor Aaron Banks urged Mr Farage to take his chips off the table and withdraw from many of the Labour-held seats that could determine the election. Anne Widdicombe is better known for her game, balletic efforts on Strictly than as a Home Office Minister in John Major's government. This time round, she's standing for election in Plymouth. And she told me why at the age of a sprightly 72, she's one of the Brexit candidates who will definitely not be standing aside to pave the way for a triumphant return to number 10 by Boris Johnson on December the 13th. She also told me why, despite her religious views, she still does the lottery. By rights, Anne, you should be playing the role of Chop Suey in the Aladdin Panto alongside Brian Blessed in Hoddleston until your decision to come out of retirement and return to politics. Has it all been worth it, Anne? Oh, yes. I mean, I didn't want to come out of retirement. I was having an extremely pleasant retirement. Um, And I'd been retired for nine years. But I grew increasingly frustrated with what was going on. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should just go back into the fray in order to do my bit towards trying to get Brexit. I noticed that in the 2015 election, um, UKIP, the forerunner of Brexit, came 6,800 votes behind um, the winning candidate in Plymouth. And that's pretty much exactly what the margin of the Labour majority over the Tories is at the moment. Doesn't that show, Anne, that if you want to get Brexit done, that you ought to stand down as well? No, not at all. I think it's horses for courses. I've got a lot of ties to that Plymouth seat. I believe that it's perfectly possible uh, that it's not a question that I'm splitting the Tory vote, but that they're splitting mine. Aaron Banks, the, the, one of the, the, the main donors of the Brexit party, has said that effectively now that the Conservative Party is the Brexit party. What, what's your response to that, Anne? Well, it's not, of course. Uh, I mean, first of all, there are still plenty of Remainers in it, but that's to one side, what the deal that um, Boris is offering is not Brexit. Now, he did make some concessions which enabled Nigel to say, OK, we won't stand in existing Tory seats, but it's still not Brexit. And I think that what we want to do is to hold the balance of power in a future parliament so that we can insist on a proper Brexit. But it, that it, is what we're about. It's getting Brexit. 
But according to the latest opinion poll, the Brexit party support is now dwindled to just 4%. Isn't it really unrealistic to think that you have a serious chance of winning any seats and exerting that the influence that you say you want to? Oh, no, it's not unrealistic at all. We've never, ever, not even when we were in the, in the, at the top of the polls, we've never suggested that we could win an outright majority, uh, merely enough seats to exert an influence. Don't forget, uh, Simon, that um, the DUP have been holding the balance of power with a mere 10 seats. Just coming to the battle you've got in Plymouth, the current MP, Luke Pollard, is the city's first openly gay MP. You've taken a pretty strong stand against certain elements of gay rights in the past. Um, And I think he said he wants to make an issue of that. How how will you respond to that challenge? Well, it's entirely up to him on what basis he fights the campaign. It's certainly not about him. You know, as I pointed out, I've um, campaigned uh, for many a gay candidate in the past uh, when I was an active politician. And to me, it's just not an issue. It's got nothing to do with the price of fish at all. But, but politics. But, but, no, wait, let me finish. No, let me finish. Politics is a terrible mess at the moment. Um, the public have lost faith in politicians in general. That's where I'm focusing. Do you still hold to the view you expressed not long ago that science may yet produce an answer to oh, being gay, as you put sake. it? Look, I am not going to go down the route of getting sidetracked by something that will not be part of my campaign at all, and which is always being distorted and misreported. Uh, And as far as I'm concerned, if you want to know my views on these things, they're on the record. Go and look up the record. I recall once or twice in the past when uh, when you were in Parliament uh, sort of cutting Boris Johnson down to size in uh, in an earlier part of his career. Is that the role that you would like to perform if you were elected as MP for Plymouth in a few weeks? Well, I mean, there's nothing personal about it at all. Um, I just want to get Brexit done, and I... I want to get a real Brexit done. Nobody's asking for a perfect deal. There's no such thing in this world as a perfect deal. But we do want a deal which means that we will be free uh, of the customs union and the single market and, above all, of the ECJ. I interviewed you at your house a few years ago, and, and I remember being most surprised to see a lottery ticket on, on your kitchen unit. Knowing you for your, for your strict religious views, I, I was very surprised. I didn't think you'd approve of gambling. Do you still do the lottery, Anne? I still do the lottery, and I can't imagine why you were surprised, uh, given that I had always been very keen that we should have a lottery, and given the huge amount of money it raises uh, for good causes. Um, and uh, I see no reason at all. Uh, why people shouldn't buy a lottery ticket. Simon, I think the most interesting thing about Anne's interview is she actually hits the nail on the head. That, you know, when you asked her, you know, aren't you worried about splitting the Tory vote? She said, no, they're splitting mine. But the truth is they're looking to get enough Brexit MPs in to hold the balance of power. And what worries me most about that, being so honest about it, is that going to put a lot of people actually off voting for Brexit and for their party? Because we just have another hung parliament just with a no deal hanging over everyone's head. But I think the fact of the matter is that Farage is clearly in retreat now. I mean, in one go, he's pulled out candidates in 317-odd seats where there's Tories. And I think you can tell it's reflected in the diminishing figures in the poll. And I think it's quite possible that by the time we get to election day, that some of the Brexit candidates in the seats where the Tories are trying to win from Labour will also have gone. I think they're on the slide. And do you think that there's actually been a deal done between Boris and Nigel? Well, who knows? But if in the next list of peerages, 
we have Lord Brexit of Saloon Bar. Uh, that might be a clue. And wouldn't it be of Marlborough with his smoking habit? Uh, I think Marlborough's already taken. <laughs> Okay, Simon, my most hilarious moment of the week was seeing Jo Swinson showing how tough she is going into a boxing ring, and she was wearing yellow boxing gloves. As a boxer myself, I can tell you no one wears canary yellow boxing gloves. She looked ridiculous. Well, I think women boxers, it's all the vogue these days. And, and how you can criticise poor old Joe Swinson for that when the Prime Minister, he's probably better known for dangling on a zip wire <laughs> over, the, over the River Thames than any, than any party policy he's introduced. He's the most shameless photo op bandit of them yeah, all. But he can get away with it. Boris can get away with anything. It's just uh, Joe Swinson's just kind of trying too hard. I'm backing Joe Swinson on this one, I'm afraid, Amanda. I think it may be the only contest she wins. If it wasn't the wrong thing to say, I'd uh, quite like to give her a little right hook. Hillary Clinton has criticised Margaret Thatcher when asked why the British Prime Minister failed to make the cut in her new book, Gutsy Women. Hillary said that Thatcher didn't qualify for her description of what a gutsy woman really was. Because surely she comes to mind with gutsy woman, even if you didn't like her. Well, she does, but she doesn't fit the other part of the definition, in our opinion, which really is knocking down barriers for others and trying to make a positive difference. I think the record is mixed with her. So, so Amanda, why do you take exception to what she said about Thatcher? Well, I listened to this on the radio. I was absolutely outraged. Margaret Thatcher was the first ever woman British prime minister. Arguably, the history books say that she's been the greatest prime minister we had since Churchill, not just in transforming this country, but in actually, you know, you look at things like right to buy. How did that not make a difference for hundreds of thousands of working class people who never would even be able to own their own home? She transformed the economy. She got rid of, you know, the, the union striking and holding the country to ransom. I just think that there's this horrible kind of lefty lovey thing in this that, you know, Hillary's saying, well, she's not really our kind of Mm. I think what struck me about it was, I mean, I, I can understand Hillary Clinton might not be an admirer of Margaret Thatcher's politics, but to suggest she's not gutsy, oh. it just doesn't wash because whatever you think of Margaret Thatcher's politics, to embark on the Falklands War was as gutsy as it gets. And her bravery in the Brighton Brom was pretty gutsy. Pretty Ta- taking on the miners at the time of the unions half-rule the country was very gutsy. Her coalition with Gorbachev, you know, seeing the end of communism, you know, the the Berlin Wall falling down, you know, she was a hugely courageous woman. And, and I think Hillary Clinton owes Margaret Thatcher more than she cares to admit to because I'm old enough to remember in 2006 when she first ran for a, the Democratic primaries that one of her advisers, Mark Penn, wrote a memo which it's advised her that she had to model herself on who? Margaret Thatcher. You're kidding. No, he said her mantra was opportunity, renewal, strength and choice and avoid the temptation to try to be loved. And that's what Hillary Clinton was named for, he said. And Hillary Clinton certainly succeeded in the last bit because she's not very loved. Esther McVeigh is the Scouse girl who became a lawyer, TV presenter on her way to joining the Tory cabinet. She spoke to me about how she thought Shadow Chancellor John McDonald's abusive comments about, quote, lynching her in 2014 may have triggered the abuse of MPs, mainly women. She compared fellow liver Puddley and McDonald to the city's notorious militant tendency politician of the 80s, Derek Hatton, and she had both of us close to tears as she recalled the happy ending to her days as a Bernardo's child. Well, I think we're all asking the question, will the real leader of the Labour Party stand up? 
because we see the power behind the throne is John MacDonald rather than who people perceive to be the leader, who is Corbyn, who's making the decisions, who's doing all the interviews on radio. And for me, coming from Liverpool like uh, John MacDonald, you can see the similarities between 1980s Liverpool. You've got a leader who is Jeremy Corbyn, who is like the leader of Liverpool at the time, who was John Hamilton, this avuncular figure. Did he have an allotment? Probably, yes. And then underneath him, as the deputy figure, you've got Derek Hatton. Now, underneath Jeremy Corbyn, his deputy figure is John MacDonald, setting the agenda. And now let's look at the promises they were making. So that illegal budget in 1985 that absolutely played havoc for Liverpool for many, many years to come. People, did they trust the city? What they did in the 80s Liverpool, same setup, same leader, deputy leader kind of figure, same impossible dreams, impossible budgets, which will bankrupt the country. Really, the power behind the throne is the more sort of Marxist figure, the person who has said he would have liked to have gone back in history and assassinated Margaret Thatcher. This, these are the words of uh, John MacDonald about myself. He said, you know, Lynch, the, I don't know if we can have explicit... P-I-T-C-H, I think I can... A whole group in the audience that completely kicked off, quite critical of the whole concept because they were arguing, why aren't we sacking her? Why aren't we lynching her? Just remind me, when did he say that and what was he talking about? I, at the time, had become the first MP for Merseyside since 1997. So by 2014, Mm -hmm. I was Minister for Employment. I was also attending Cabinet. And this is where the whipping up of hatred against me begun. It, It was definitely about bullying. It was definitely about intimidation. It also was about marking the cards that nobody else dare be a Tory on Merseyside. You know, go forth, get rid of her. How dare she? Who's this? Why should we have anybody on Merseyside be a Tory? Unfortunately, I am not the sort of person who will either be bullied or intimidated. I chose my path to be a conservative because I had seen the destruction to me that the militants had done on Merseyside. Did MacDonald apologise to you? No, he's never apologised. And his usual sort of get-out card is, oh, it was only a joke. But the words are there. He's a person in a powerful position. And that really, I felt, was the start of this sort of vitriol and nastiness against other mm. MPs. Well, it's hateful, really, isn't it? Well, you know, it, it certainly, as I thought, was a, was about sort of a bullying inter- intimidation. You, it's you certainly know, about violence you, against another member of parliament. Uh, but you you must have passed him in a, in a corridor once or twice in the building. Have you have you have you never looked him in the eye and said, "Well, come on, Mister McDonald, don't you think you should say sorry to me?" Oh, I did actually straight away. So this is going back to the end. I don't know, November, December, twenty fourteen, and he was in the Terrace Cafe, and I said, "Come on, John, you know." So this out why don't you just apologize to which he didn't and he wouldn't look at me and he said sort of no and how dare i interrupt him really what how, how dare you interrupt his because he was his, having a sort of a his, cup his of coffee my, my soldiers <laughs> whatever he was ha- having where really i think it could have been sort of put to bed a long time ago and it never 
ever was. Do, do you think, in a way, that when people like John McDonnell make a remark like that, they think it's they may think it's flip and light-hearted, but they don't realise what they're setting off? I don't know if he knew or didn't know what chain of events he was going to set off, but it was unbelievably brutal what happened for those periods of years when you say and feel free as a member of parliament to say against another member of parliament go out and lynch the person let's get rid of her whip up hatred bullying intimidation anything can do anybody can do anything so whether that was people were sitting outside my house whether it would be I would get on a train of Euston and you can twitter and tell people she's on the train meet her at the other end what would be meeting me when I got up at Lime Street and then I'd walk and get the tube? What was put in the papers? What was scribbled down the high street, bringing people over uh, whilst I was sort of campaigning? I never thought in a million years when I set off on this journey into politics how brutal it would be. Did you, did you think of packing it up because of all that? It just wasn't worth it. That's not the sort of person I am. Because other women MPs have. Lots of people now are standing down because of the level of bullying, intimidation. But in a sense, you've said that you described yourself as a fighter with your with your background. In a way, is it that you didn't you didn't want to let John McDonnell win? If you'd stood down, it would have been like handing victory to him. Yes, I think that probably has got a, a ring of truth about it. I knew what I was standing for. I knew it was about helping people like me be able to achieve. So I've always believed in social mobility. I've always believed in self-empowerment. You know, a kid from a Bernardo school who's managed to make it around the cabinet table. So I want everybody to do that. So long as you work hard, so long as you've got a belief. So I would not have somebody coming and through bullying, intimidation, saying these words, stopping other people like me. And that's what he was trying to do. It was basically saying, don't you dare think of being a conservative on Merseyside. Don't you dare, because if you do, this will happen to you. I believe in people being able to have a say. So I believe in free speech. I believe in all of those freedoms of an individual, so long as it's within the law. I mean, you have, you know, you you are a most unusual conservative, not just because you come from Liverpool, but you've just mentioned it. You 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 came from a Bernardo's home. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? My mum and dad were very young when they got together. They had dreams, they had aspirations, but they were very poor. It was that simple, and they loved each other. And unfortunately, when they had me, uh, they couldn't look after me. And at the same time, my grandma was dying, so nobody could look after me. So. So they decided it would be a Bernardo's charity. When was it that you went back to your mum and dad? Well, a bit like um, everything. They probably thought it was going to be sooner rather than later. But they had to get themselves sorted, uh, you know, get some money, uh, get a home. Dad then started his own little business because that was what was going to give him money to be able to look after his sort of young so how, family. So how old were you when, when, when you went? When you Four and a half. Four and a half. And do you remember that? Now, I was with foster families, so I was with families. I think they were big, noisy, loving families. And the reason I say that Little is... Little Padlings, you mean? Totally. <laughs> um, and, and lots of fun, and it would have been a loving environment. Um, my mum and dad kept in touch, so it wasn't that they wouldn't wouldn't have. I remember this, and this is what happened. So I would have gone back home and I would have gone to my mum and dad. And then I just remember at the end of the evening, I say that it was probably mid-afternoon, um, I said, so I was obviously independent there, even at that age. And I said, oh, well, I'm off now 
because it, it must have seemed very quiet. And I just remember the noise of this home and this family I would have been with. And then I had a tiny little blue suitcase, which my doll was in. And I said, well, I'm going to pack up my suitcase and I'm off now. So I put my doll in my little suitcase and I went to leave. So my dad smiled <laughs> and thought, well, I'll follow her. He said, where are you going? Well, off to the bus stop, I said. So my dad watched me sort of go. There was a bus stop just opposite and he, he followed me. And it was a Sunday afternoon and he said, oh, look, the bus hasn't come. Why don't you take my hand and we'll go back home and maybe tomorrow you can get the bus. And I never did. Has that had an effect on you in later life? I believe in the goodness of people because people looked after me and I do believe in that. I do believe that you've got to have, and I've always believed in the compassionate conservative because I know without money, there really isn't much you can do because I've not had money. Pretty incredible, isn't it, listening to her, Simon? And she's, she's a tough woman. She's come from a very difficult background. Total absence of self-pity. You know, really a bit like Margaret Thatcher had a total belief in a human's ability to come from anywhere and do anything. But it is terrifying what was happening to her because once you get a group like Momentum, I've been targeted by them, once they actually start targeting you as they did with Esther, it just doesn't stop. You can't go anywhere. They tweet where you are, just as she said, everywhere you go, there's going to be people there ready to abuse you. And God, I don't know how she has the strength to stand up to it, but I'm very glad we have people like her. As we speak, hundreds of parliamentary candidates are tramping the streets, knocking on doors, trying to persuade people to come out and vote for them. But it doesn't always go to plan. My favourite canvassing story from the past was in one of the 1980s elections when the veteran Labour MP Eric Heffer was trawling through his inner city constituency. Outside one terrace house, Eric nervously sidestepped an Alsatian growling at him on the front garden path. He knocked on the door and a lady kindly invited him in for a cup of tea and a chat. During the chat, the dog was, Eric said afterwards, chewing up the furniture and peeing on the sofa. I thought, why can't they keep it under control? As he was leaving, the lady of the house called after him, uh, Mr Heffer, aren't you going to take your dog with you? <laughs> My other one is from an old mate of mine, the marvellous left-wing Labour MP, Bob Marshall Andrews. And when he was campaigning, he knocked on the door of one constituent who said he'd vote for Mr Marshall Andrews, but only if he stopped all immigrants coming in. Marshall Andrews, who was a ferocious anti-racism campaigner, said, that is disgusting. I'm banning you from voting for me. The householder shouted, I'll bloody vote for you if I want to. Marshall Andrews replied, you bloody won't, and I know where you live. <laughs> this old-fashioned thing where people are still knocking on doors. You think everything now would be done through the internet, but they still do it. I've got this friend who's about 17 years old, she's Spanish, and she gets a bit lonely, and a couple of Labour people knocked on her door, showed her pictures of Boris Johnson and said, sort of went, boo, here, he's a terrible liar, pictures of Corbyn saying, he's a really nice guy. So she talked to them for about 20 minutes because she was lonely, and they said, are you going to vote for Mr Corbyn then? She said, I've never voted in my life. I know, you're right. I mean, most of the action these days takes place not on the doorstep, but on social media, and there's barely a day goes past when a candidate from one party or the other hasn't had to resign because of a tweet they sent out five or 10 years ago. And my favourite tweet this week was by the journalist Molly Goodfellow, who said, This election is like an advent calendar, except behind every door is an offensive tweet by a candidate we've never heard of. <laughs> 
Labour has unveiled what it calls a 10-point plan to save the NHS at a cost of an extra £26 billion. I caught up with the man who drew up the plan, Shadow Health Secretary John Ashworth. We spoke about that, whether Boris Johnson really plans to sell the NHS to Donald Trump, and about how growing up with an alcoholic father inspired John to launch a campaign to help children who suffer that fate now. John, tell us about your NHS proposals. Oh, well, we've announced today, Simon, a big rescue package for our NHS, a huge £26 billion, uh, increase in NHS funding. That's £40 billion in cash terms. And the reason we've announced this is because, look, we've got 4.5 million people on the waiting list. We've got 600,000 people waiting beyond 18 weeks for treatment, people with cancer waiting longer and longer for treatment, or young people, children with mental health problems not getting the support that they need. So we really think we've got to do something to put the money back into the NHS. Those doctors and nurses we need were so desperately short of doctors and nurses and start delivering the quality care people in this country really deserve. It sounds great, John, but the, I suppose the criticism of it might be your, your, your opponents would say that no matter how much money you promise to spend on the NHS, it's not worth anything if the economy is not safe in Labour's hands. And how can people be sure that it is? Well, look, I mean, I think investing in the NHS, it's not only giving patients that quality care. So, you know, a lot of your listeners who are probably waiting longer and longer for an operation, whether it's a knee replacement or a cataract removal, I mean, I don't think people should wait long in pain and agony. They should get those those operations and treatments quickly. But when you invest in the NHS, you invest in the economy. So, look, we're going to put more money into the NHS, certainly. But, you know, the NHS, a hospital in a local area, is, you, is often one of the best local employers. So it's actually good for jobs in the economy as well. Isn't there a danger that Boris Johnson is, a- is actually stealing some of your, your territory here? There's never a day goes past when he doesn't appear in a hospital with his sleeves rolled up doing his bedside manner act. And the opinion polls s- suggest that Boris is actually ahead of Jeremy Corbyn on the NHS. But you know the hospital he wasn't at? He wasn't at the hospital where there were elderly people languishing on trolleys for hours and hours and hours in corridors, not able to get a bed. So he's not actually putting the money in to get the quality care people deserve. So you know, I understand what he's doing. It's politics. He's, he's trying. The, the political lingo is he's trying to neutralise it as an issue for the Tory party. That's what his spin doctors are advising him. But he cannot. He can't kid people when you know they can't get a GP appointment or their elderly relative is left on the trolley. People know the reality of the NHS and the Tories. Isn't, isn't the wider problem for Labour in this election, John, the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, I mean, you yourself have been quite critical of his failure to get get to grips with anti-Semitism. I mean, you, you work for Gordon Brown, who many Labour supporters would see as a far more substantial Labour leader than Jeremy Corbyn. Don't you wish that Gordon Brown could be leading, leading you into this election? <laughs> I see the way you... I see, the, I see how you've worded that. I'm obviously, as you know, the big fan of Gordon. I, went, I did work for him for, for, for many years. But Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's, Corbyn's not in the same... Fan. Jeremy Corbyn's not in the same league as Gordon Brown, is he? Well, I mean, I, I mean, Gordon Brown... I always think that Gordon Brown is a, is a towering figure, and I think, um, you know, I mean, he, 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 you know, he's all, he, he, he perhaps wasn't at his best in uh, Daily Mail interviews, but he was always... Uh, I think the history books will be a lot kinder to Gordon Brown, actually. But, look, you know, on the issue of anti-Semitism, I've always spoken out about the evil of anti-Semitism. We have, we have to deal with it whenever we are confronted with it. And I did, I'll be honest, I've, I've pushed the Labour Party to get better at it. Well, it's, sh- it. it's shameful, yeah. isn't it, that, 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 not more, that more hasn't been done? Well, you know, we always have to do more. We always have to do more. And, um, and, and by the way, I mean, this isn't a kind of, you know, look at the other side sort of thing, but the Tory Party have got to deal with Islamophobia as well. R- racism 
whenever we come across it, has to be dealt with swiftly. John, on, on a personal note, you, you have um, campaigned for more treatment um, for people suffering alcoholism, and, and you've spoken about the, the, the effect on your life that having an, an alcoholic father had. What, what was it like, John? I mean, growing up with a, um, a parent with a drink problem, it colours everything. It colours everything, and if I'm honest with you, I've never really told anyone this before, so you've got an exclusive here, but until I had children, I've never really, I've always found Christmas difficult, because it just always brought back the memories of, you know, you just, you know, people might give him Christmas cards, he wouldn't ever bother opening them. He just used to stay sort of on the table, unopened, because he was more interested in just drinking. Um, did he get, so that, he, you did know, he, what, I, you mean he got, he got drunk on, on, on over the Christmas lunch, or what do you mean? We didn't, we didn't have a Christmas lunch. <laughs> There's no Christmas lunch. We didn't have one. We didn't have anything. One of the things I've done is speak out about the families and children particularly affected by um, parental drinking. And actually, here's a, here's a rare thing which, you would, which is unusual for a politician in an election campaign. Jeremy Hunt, when he was the Tory Health Secretary, actually got together with me and said, I've listened to what you said. I want to do something to support children in these circumstances. And we worked on a thing together. And me and, and Jeremy Hunt a scheme to help children affected by parental drinking. And me and Jeremy Hunt even actually announced the policy together, uh, even though I was his shadow health secretary. I mean, you don't get that very often in modern British politics, do you? And what a shame we don't have it in modern British elections, because, Simon, every single time there's an election, the NHS is just a kicking ball. And more and more figures that don't really mean anything to people are offered. And yet the problems just continue and continue. But, you know, the two of them, a shadow health secretary and a health secretary, got together and made a difference. Why can't they do that across the board? Do you think we could ever take politics out of the NHS? Afraid not. Simon, what's your topical tune for this week? Well, Amanda Boris Johnson was asked to name his favourite um, bands, and he named the Rolling Stones and the Clash. Well, as for the Rolling Stones, I, I can't imagine what Boris Johnson has in common with Mick Jagger, a man who's had eight children by five different women. <laughs> Steady style. But I think The Clash is the more interesting one because The Clash's best-known song was Should I Stay or Should I Go? What more appropriate song could you have during an election campaign? But the, the Clash was a kind of a punk band, and it occurred to me... Boris is a punk politician, really. Um, the band's lead uh, musician was Joe Strummer. The band were known as the Thinking Man's Yobs. They had an album called Cut the Crap. One of their <laughs> albums was called White Riot, calling on people to riot. And they broke all the rules. And there's this kind of unconventional wildness about Boris. Not just his hair, but the whole unconventional provocative style. I mean, if you look at one of Boris's most recent speeches, they could be lyrics from a Clash song. He's talked about the political onanism of Jeremy Corbyn. A few months ago, he talked about public money being spaffed up the wall. So I think we've actually discovered who Boris really is. He's Joe Strummer. <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget you'll be able to listen back to this and all our other Mail Plus radio podcasts at mailplus.co. 
politicalchat.co.uk. Join us next week for more political chat and election updates. But for now, that's all from me, Simon Walters. And from me, Amanda Platel. Goodbye. Should I stay or should I go?